You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lithub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with David Ullen. Hello, can I please speak with David Yulin? Is he? Hello, David. This is Paul Holdengraber calling you. I'm so happy to find you. I'm so happy to be, to, to be found. And so you are. And so you are in the City of Angels. Uh, tell me, what, what have you been up to recently? Um, I have been uh, doing some traveling. I've been doing some teaching. I've been trying to carve out some time to write. And I've just gotten back home uh, to Los Angeles in the last, yeah, the last 24 hours or so. Where were you? I was down in uh, Palm Desert. How fantastic. Teaching? Doing some teaching, yeah. yeah. You know, I so I moved to Los Angeles. I moved back to Los Angeles after fif- a 15-year hiatus. And it it seems as though the city has changed so dramatically. And somebody I, I, I saw very early on here uh, when I came back told me, you know, the city has changed uh, not because you have left, but since you have left. And um, as much as I'd love it to be because, it really is since. And this change in 15 years seems to be dramatic. What do you think the most, first of all, do you agree? And secondly, what is the most dramatic change you find or dramatic changes you find to the city? And even the idea of a city, we might talk about it in a moment. I think it definitely has changed dramatically in the last 15 years. And I think it has changed more dramatically and more quickly than any other city I've ever lived in in an in equivalent period of time. I think there's a couple of things that are happening. One is a kind of push to redevelop uh, public transportation as a viable option or alternative in the city, primarily through the construction of light rail um, and expansion of the subway line. Um, and secondly, I think a kind of uh, densifying process both in terms of some, uh, both in terms of verticalization, taller buildings, but also in terms of kind of more, let's say, more traditional um, uses of structures. You know, combined commercial and residential uh, structures are kind of loosening of zoning in some ways. I think this is a double-edged sword because I also think that you know we're at a kind of a tipping point where I think we're we, the city is about to slide into too much development and too much construction a concern of mine. But these elements have made Los Angeles kind of function more as a traditional city, if we can even use that word in terms of cities, or at least like a Los Angeles version of a traditional city, which is to say a city of street life, a city with, you know, with, again, with more, more densely occupied, more densely used, and a city in which you don't necessarily need to travel by car. It's still in the middle of that process. I think part of it has to do with the fact that Los Angeles always had the bones of that city. It was, it is a city of neighborhoods and has been, um, traffic and congestion and mobility has become more difficult and more constricted. It's harder to get around town. People have begun to stay in their neighborhoods more and think more in terms of the neighborhood. And I think very 
I very strongly that neighborhoods are the building blocks of um, of cities. So, so there's um, a, a very strong feeling in Los Angeles, which I'm feeling on a daily basis for private life rather than a public square and you know it it strikes me uh, what you just said about about maybe maybe los angeles being this extraordinarily extraordinary sprawl that it 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 has always been known as being that you quote that wonderful line by by dorothy parker where she says that it's 70 that los angeles is 72 suburbs in search of a city Moment in the city because you've got two opposing visions of the city. 
community. One is what's called the traditional Los Angeles model of the private home, and the other is the more sort of classic 19th to early 20th century model of city with the public life. Um, kind of in, they're sort of, um, they're, they're, they're not exactly in competition or in conflict, but they are definitely kind of rubbing up, up against each other. And it's creating a really interesting kind of creative friction in terms of how we think about the city and also how we occupy the city, how we use the city. You, you, you very skillfully went back to my first question or observation. The, the quotation of Dorothy Parker, uh, does it annoy you? interests me particularly uh, strongly, David, in what you're saying here, is that Los Angeles, in a way, has taught you about yourself. 
about yourself yeah. and who you are and who and perhaps uh, the self you have become became who you are because of that friction because of that friction that wasn't always i mean friction isn't always pleasant that friction right. uh, that that was complicated and went through so many different uh moments and modulations There's, there is a passage in sidewalking coming to terms with los angeles a book i'm i'm really loving where where you you say the following about peeling back the cliches i'll read it you say this is what all these years in in Los Angeles have taught me that the only strategy for reckoning with the place is to employ a kind of double vision by which we peel back the cliches, the received wisdom, received from whom I often wonder, and interact with the city on its terms. Yes, Los Angeles is sprawling, random, without narrative, except, of course, when it is not. Yes, it can be still and sun-baked with, 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 as Capote writes, an air of Sunday vacancy here when no one walks and cars glide in a constant shiny silent stream. But the same, I'd argue, might be said of any city where someone shows up for a few days or a few weeks and tries to come to a conclusion rather than to engage. Los Angeles, John Gregory Dunn wrote in the 1970s, is the least accessible and therefore the worst reported of American cities. It is not available to the walker in the city. There is no place where the natives gather. Distance obliterates unity and community. This inaccessibility means that the contemporary of Tocqueville on a layover between planes can define Los Angeles only in terms of his own culture shock. Dunn, you write, is taking note of something defining about the landscape. But even more, he's critiquing the standards of the critique. I found this engro I found this engrossing. The last line, of course, rings deeply. And I'd love you to, to unpack it now that I've read it, read back to you both Dunn's observations and your observations on Dunn's observations. I think that for me, the key to that Dunn quote, um, which is from a, a masterful essay called Eureka that was published in the mid, uh, mid late 1970s. Um, it's precisely the, you know, he's not, he's taking on, he's not taking on the city so much as he's taking on the voices that take on the city. Yeah. Los Angeles, again, I, this is not just true of Los Angeles, but Los Angeles has a grand history of people parachuting in from elsewhere for a couple of weeks. Um, putting up at some hotel or another and, um, and then explaining the city to, uh, presumably to the people from wherever they are from, but also to us, um, as if we couldn't explain the city to ourselves. And I think that, you know, the critique gets taken for granted. One of the things that Dunn's articulating in that passage is, a, is, is the critique, right? There is no center here. There's no there there. There's no place where people gather. There's no street life. Um, everything kind of happens behind closed doors. So for the casual visitor or even the visitor who comes for a little bit to report on the place, it's very difficult to find the point of intersection or to figure out where you can peel back the surface of the city and actually see what's happening underneath. I think that's true. I'm not sure that that's only true in Los Angeles. I think that that is probably true, as I say in the passage, of 
any city or anyone who comes to a place for a couple of weeks and starts to uh, starts to write about it. But the real thing is the real thing that's taking on is that critique. Of course, Los Angeles is a place with um, with uh, with depth and um, and nuance and you know, history and ideas and and all of that stuff, right? Intellectual life, emotional life, um, because it, 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 all places are. But um, so what Dunn is saying is, don't just come here for a couple of weeks and write about it. But more to the point, don't fall into the easy definition that has essentially been um, installed. I think. Um, not necessarily through a, you know, by any one individual, but just through a succession of pieces or a succession of visits and observations about the city that seem in some ways to be more in conversation with each other than they are in conversation with, between the author and the city. As an example, we can look at the way architecture gets used. I talk about this a bit in sidewalking. If you go back to Nathaniel West and the Day of the Locust, one of the things that he uses in an early pages of the book as a way of establishing the ludicrous nature of Los Angeles is to is a critique of the architecture. As he's describing the physical landscape of the city, he's describing the buildings that look like, you know, French chateaus or Moorish castles or fairy tale houses with those crumbly roofs. And he's mocking them as, you know, New Yorker or Manhattanite as he as he was, as as I uh, was also, he's mocking them for their frivolity. What he's basically saying is, how can we take seriously a city where people literally live in fake chateaus? Norman Mailer makes a similar critique in, in uh, his piece about uh, JFK's um, the convention, the 1960 Democratic Convention, which JFK was nominated for president, which happened in Los Angeles at the Biltmore Hotel. Kennedy was like, nominated at the Coliseum, but the convention itself was at the hotel. And Mailer critiques the architecture of the San Fernando Valley as somehow expressing the flat, middle class, valueless nature of suburban American culture. Um, there are other, I mean, there are many other sort of references to that, uh, to that architecture. My point of view, which is not an original one, I, you know, I, I didn't develop it on my own, but I've, I've developed it from the reading and, and in conjunction with other people who've made a similar argument, is that actually that kind of architecture is one of the greatest things about Los Angeles, one of the most unique and sort of defining fingerprints about the place. Because what the what it suggests is a kind of lowercase d democratic promise um, that begins. I mean, you want to live in a French chateau? Go ahead. You want to have a restaurant, programmatic architecture. You want to have a restaurant that sells tamales that's designed in the shape of a tamale. There was one such restaurant in Whittier that was just put up for sale a couple of years ago. The building was. The restaurant had long since been closed. You want to have a coffee shop in the shape of a coffee pot. You want to live in a fairy tale cottage with gumdrop roofs? Be my guest if you can if you have if you can do that, right? And so I think there's something really interesting about the way Los Angeles gets read through the filter of exoticism, or the aspects of Los Angeles that get read through the filter of exoticism, when in fact they, if you look at them from the inside, they are they are almost exactly the opposite of that. I have often thought that if there were palm trees lining Fifth Avenue, we would have no culture of exoticism in regard to Los Angeles or to Southern California. I think that people from places, particularly people from places where they don't have palm trees come to Los Angeles, see the palm trees, and lose their mind. Right. <laughs> and they think of the place as somehow, you know, think of all those cliches, lotus land, la-la land. They think of it as some sort of Edenic almost, um, you know, almost like, you know, from the Odyssey, right? Um, but at the same time, you know, but I think it's all based on those kind of exterior observations of the landscape 
through their own preconceived notions. The other thing I just want to say quickly about the palm trees, which is the greatest irony of them all, is that except one native um, strain, they are, like many of us here, transplants. They are not native to the place, and so they themselves are a construction. What I find really interesting about Los Angeles is that notion of constructiveness. There's no reason for this city to exist here. It doesn't have the resources to survive. It doesn't have the, you know, the natural landscape can't support on its own the population. And so Los Angeles itself is a giant invention in a lot of ways, technological as well as cultural. Um, and, and I think that that is something, you know, that there, there is a kind of a fantasy to that, no question. But there is also a really powerful intentionality and a really powerful sense of will. We make this city every day because it shouldn't exist. It should, and, and at some point it won't. That's one of the reasons I'm fascinated with the La Brea Tart Pits. Because again, you get that double vision. On the one hand, it's the cheesiest tourist attraction in town. On the other hand, the tar is what's underlying the city. It's what the city grew out of, and it's where we're all going eventually. Um, that will be the legacy of the city. Will be a giant pit of tar. Well, you know, and uh, again, now, now you 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 end this comment, this wonderful disquisition with with um, precisely uh, using the word existential, you go precisely back to the notion that the confrontation of David Yulin with Los Angeles has been productive. And one of the ways in which it has been productive through the tar pits is to see that the city is on, on the verge, like so many cities, of extinction, is evanescent is um is uh, challenged and i'm you know i'm i'm what what also really interests me which i began by reading is this notion of peeling back the clichés because if ever there is a cliché ridden way of rid writing about any city or for that matter visiting any city people will say well in paris and then fill in the blanks or in new york and then fill in the blanks the possibility of of being you know one big cliché is particularly, I think, exacerbated when we speak about travel and cities. And there are very, very few writers, you know, maybe Pico Aya is one of them. S certainly, Jan Morris is another one of them. Who, Jan Morris who, wrote a great essay about Los Angeles called The How To City, um, which basically makes that argument for the practicality and sort of the practical skill set of the place. It's one of the best pieces of travel writing I've ever read in general, and one of the best essays I've read about. And tell me a little bit more about uh, about that essay. Jan Morris was one of my very favorite. I mean, everyone is my favorite, but Jan Morris was one of my particularly favorite phone calls I made. It comes from a book called Destinations, which came out, I think, yes. in the late 70s, maybe 1980. I believe yes. the essay was originally written and published in 1976. One of the things, one of the lenses through which Morris looks at the city, which is brilliant, I think, because it is and then completely not obvious is through studio craft people. So not the actors or the directors, not the people we think of when we think about the movie business, but the carpenters and the electricians. <laughs> and, um, and she talks, uses them in part as a lens to talk about um, basically the practical uh, foundations of the dream factory. And so, but also by focusing on studio craft people, she brings in that overlay 
of the kind of Hollywood cliche or the dream factory cliche. We talked about that cliche for hours. Um, and then actually, and while she's invoking it, she kind of undermines it because she's not talking about it in that dreamscape way. She's talking about it in utterly practical crafts, um, craft construction ways. So it allows us to see the kind of dynamic of the whole city um, well, you you know what I will be reading very soon now. Um, thank it's you. A beautiful, beautiful. Episode. Well, I I I adore 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 her. She's probably written the, the her favorite book is prob is also my favorite book of hers. She wrote a gorgeous gorgeous essay on Trieste called Trieste and the Meaning of Nowhere, which if you haven't read it, I encourage. A, more than a look, read it carefully. It is beautiful. It has, it has clues, so many deep clues. There, there is an, uh, um, a quotation you use both in your splendid uh, anthology about Los Angeles and also in uh, Sidewalking by somebody who I don't know at all. Um, I tried to look him up, but I'm not sure I found him. And that is a, a certain Frank Black who said, I want to live in Los Angeles but not the one in Los Angeles. It made me smile. It made it made me smile. And I, I'd love you both to tell me who is Frank Black and how do you understand that sentence? Okay, well, Frank Black, um, better known uh, under the name Black Francis, was the lead singer of the band The Pixies. And this is a lyric from um, a song called Los Angeles in his uh, that was on his first solo album in the early 90s after the Pixies broke up. Um, it's a bit of a, how would I put it? It's a bit of a misrepresentation because he's not talking about Los Angeles. I mean, he's talking about it. And he's, in, in that lyric, he's talking about another city named Los Angeles, not Los Angeles, California. I can't, I cannot now remember which, which, which town he's talking about. Um, and so he's making a pun, you know, I want to live in Los Angeles, but not the one in Los Angeles. He's not talking about wanting to live in Los Angeles, California, but this other Los Angeles. I, you know, I like that line because to me it captures all of the ambiguities of my own relationship with Los Angeles. Yes. And also in some way, by appropriating it, I'm, um, I'm doing what we always do with the art that, is, that, that strikes us in some way or that we feel, which is to say, I'm, I'm making it my own and I'm taking what, you know, taking his sentiment and turning it as a reflection of mine. For me, it expresses this idea which I felt always, or, you know, I shouldn't say always, I'm not sure I feel it so much anymore, but for a long time I felt, you know, I do want to live in Los Angeles, but I'd like Los Angeles to be a little bit different than it is. Um, and this may be, in some ways, comes back to the notion of the shift in the city over the last 15 years, the way the city has kind of progressed and, and developed. Um, I always... Los Angeles is a challenging city to live in. It's a challenging city to move to. It's a challenging city even once you think you know it. It's constantly revealing itself to you in ways that are actions that we were talking about, the friction that Los Angeles provokes in me. I feel like I'm always engaged in a kind of act of um, a translation, maybe, uh, not in terms of language, but in terms of I'm always having to kind of notice and assess um, the experience I'm having, and that's partly my own personality, but it's also partly that Los Angeles, although it is my home, is not where I was born and raised, and so in that sense, I'm not a native, and I'm never going to be a native. I think of myself in a way as, um, you know, as, uh, I'm a transplant, I'm a lifer, 
but it, there is all there. There are still those moments of a kind of split second where I literally have to kind of process the information and make some kind of assessment of where I am and what I'm doing in a way that um, that I might not if I had grown up here or if I was living in a city where I was raised. It's not uh, I didn't grow up speaking Los Angeles. In other words, I had to kind of um, learn it after I got here. So there's always a there's always a little bit of a kind of Friction, I think. In a sense, a tension of wanting, of being somewhere and wanting to be somewhere else or being with somebody and wishing they were slightly different, which I think is, uh, it, which is an urge that we, um, you know, we, we all have when we, I, I think we have it when we fall in love. Um, we have it when we fall in love. I think, you know, for me, one of, I've been thinking about this, I've got to think about this a lot, but I've been thinking about it lately. It's one of the great challenges of, of parenting is, you know, I have a sense of what oh, I think my children are going to be, and then my children are born, and they are completely different from anything I imagined, and then I have to make that adjustment. It's up to me to make the adjustment rather than for them to make the adjustment to my expectation. And so I think we're always kind of doing, I mean, we're always making those calibrations and recalculations. I do it when I'm working. I start, you know, I have an idea for something that I'm going to write. And then I sit down and start writing it, and, you know, I write a couple of sentences, and it's already different. And I have, it, because it isn't, it's no longer an abstract, it's becoming, it's becoming concrete, and it's making its own way in the world. And if I'm going to do my work well, then I have to pay attention to that and respond to what the piece of writing is doing, rather than try and force it to do what I think it ought to do. I mean, I very much think about that in regard to parenting, and, uh, and also probably in regard to most human um, relationships, uh, you know, I have to let the people I'm in relation with be who they are, and then I have to respond to that. They're not going to, you know, they, they're not going to do it my way. <laughs> That's right. Um, uh, David, the, the, I, I want to bring in a, a, a couple of uh, uh Quotations that I, I um, that I think might might speak quite quite beautifully to our subject here, and then I also would love you to read something of your own work. There, um, two, both of them are, are from from Joan Didion, and one of them uh, goes as follows: A good part of any day in Los Angeles is spent driving alone through streets devoid of meaning to the driver. The place exhilarates some people and floods others with an amorphous unease. Um, these hours spent in transit are a, of a seductive unconnectedness a seductive unconnectedness um struck me as very as very well put if not necessarily totally true it, well, i believe at one point it was largely true i think it is I, i think it's actually very well put and it's one of my favorite um it's actually one of my favorite riffs on los angeles one of my favorite didion Um, descriptions of the city, um, uh, obviously in keeping with her long kind of obsession with cars and freeways and sort of isolation. Um, I don't necessarily share the obsession with cars and freeways, but I absolutely share the obsession with isolation. And I think that there is that sense with the back to that idea of Los Angeles as a private life, life city without a lot of heat happening on the surface. It can be a very isolating place. And I think that that is one of the problems that people have when they, not all people, but some people have when they come here is it can feel really isolating. It can, you can feel really alone and it can feel very difficult to sort of figure out what the vernacular of the city is and how do you navigate it, navigate it in a way that you can find, um, others 
you know, others of, you know, basically, uh, you know, you, you can find sympathetic others. So I think that that is, um, you know, but I think, again, if we go back to what has been happening over the last 15 years, I think that notion is being mitigated for, you know, not for everyone and not in every circumstance, but as the city does become kind of a more public life city, as it does become more centered through downtown, as we, as the neighborhoods do sort of assert themselves, I think that that becomes, it becomes a mitigated idea. The way we move through the landscape without expectation allows us to be conscious in a way that we might not otherwise. And that's deeply exhilarating. We're well, making the landscape as we move through it. And, and you, you, um, in, in, in sidewalking, you, you, um, quote someone who is very dear to my heart, n namely uh, Norman Klein, um, who wrote that extraordinary book that I read so many years ago when I was a jolly good fellow at the Getty in a former life and a former part of my life, which resided actually in Los Angeles. In his book, um, uh, The History of Forgetting, he, he talks and, and you speak about it, that Los Angeles resists narrative. And I think one of the ways in which you manage to create a true narrative is through a certain form of resistance to the city, which is namely by traveling, as Werner Herzog would put it, by foot, by walk, walking in the city. And I'm, I'm, I came across this, this line by Lauren Elkin, where she says, walking is mapping with your feet. It helps you piece a city together, connecting up neighborhoods that might otherwise have remained discrete entities, different planets bound to each other, sustained yet remote. And it, it seems to me that that what, what she's describing is what you're doing. I think that I mean, I, I'm a huge admirer of her work, and I think that what she's describing is exactly, I think, what I'm trying to do. I think, you know, Rebecca Solnit in Wanderlust talks about something similar about yes. the idea of walking through a city as a kind of act of possibility. You don't have to go into every place, but the fact that you, that you could, that they're there and accessible to you, it opens, it opens up a whole series of overlapping sets of possibilities, even if you don't take advantage of them. And I think that that's a really important idea. For me, it was partly practical and partly not. The practical aspect of it was that I don't like to drive, so I've always lived in Los Angeles in landscapes or in neighborhoods, let's say, where certain basic functions are accessible by foot. It, that is definitely a reflection also, however, not just that I don't like to drive, but this idea of what defines the neighborhood of the city in which I grew up. And so I think um, I, in sidewalking, I talk a little bit about the idea that we both, you know, the cities we live in remake us in their image. You have to live in the landscape you're in. But we also, we also remake them in our image, which is to say, I choose to live in a neighborhood in Los Angeles where I can walk to the bank or to the dry cleaner or to, you know, get a cup of coffee or, you know, to a couple of restaurants, get some lunch or whatever. Because that is important to me in terms of my own quality of life. From the, you know, that's one of the reasons I live in cities is so that, I, that, I, that, that, that those kinds of um, experiences are accessible to me. Um, however, again, I have to kind of consciously find that neighborhood or find those neighborhoods or look for those options. So it's not something I take for granted, which makes me have to be more, pay more attention. That's 
for me, especially in a city like this one, which when you're in the car, going back to Didion or going back to that notion of sprawl, you are in a kind of amorphous territory because you're not really putting your feet on the ground in the neighborhood. It's more it's more pronounced on the freeway because the freeway sort of sits over the city, right? In most parts of the city, the freeway is elevated. So the freeway, you're almost driving over neighborhoods. You can be in a part of the city without actually even knowing. I mean, you may know intellectually where you are, but you are, can be in a part of the city without actually even observing the neighborhood you're passing through or passing over. We get disconnected from the street that way. And even or more, and, and even more so now because um, our, our we, we no longer use anything but the GPS. I, and I, I, that's a whole other and really interesting territory that I've been thinking about a lot lately as well, about what the GPS does, takes away from us. But the paradox is that walking puts us physically on the street, and not only puts us on the street, but in a city that's designed to be navigated, at, even, at, even at street level, surface street level, at 30 miles, 35 miles an hour, we're now navigating it at three miles an hour or whatever, however fast you walk. Um, and so that slows everything down. We notice things that we wouldn't notice otherwise. We're not simply looking, even if you're not using GPS, when you're driving, you're, you're paying attention to the cars around you, you're paying attention to the traffic signals, you're thinking about the traffic and how long it's taking you. You're rarely looking around. I don't want you looking around when you're driving. It's dangerous to me as a pedestrian. But walking kind of almost requires us to look around. I mean, it slows things down to that point. So now, so it grounds us, or at least for me, I shouldn't, I shouldn't make the, the universal. It grounds me, and it allows me to really feel myself existing in the place that I am existing. And by that, I don't even just mean the city. I mean the neighborhood or perhaps even this block, this stretch of sidewalk. And it, and what it what it also what it, I think what it also does, David, and that's why I was using the word uh, resistance, which you use in another book of yours. I'll come to it in one second. Is the notion that walking is in a way a form of resisting and of reading the city, of being um, confronted with the city and reading the city, reading the city um, between the lines, as it were. You you have a book called The Lost Art of Reading Books. And and resistance in a troubled time, one might say that uh, sidewalking is, in a sense, also an act of resistance. You're you're looking at a city in a way where the city is not the city is not meant to be practiced, as it were, in the way you're practicing Los Angeles. That's an interesting point. I mean, for me too, and it's probably true with, with reading as well. I'm really interested in inefficiency, right? So. Um, walking is, a, you know, in the total scheme of things, walking is a really inefficient way to get around. You're limited in terms of, you know, you're limited in terms of time, you're limited in terms of distance, you're limited in terms of your own physical endurance. Um, and so, you know, there are many more efficient ways to get around the city. Um, probably the same is true of reading. There are many more efficient ways to get your information than to sit down and, and read a book and tune out everything else. But I'm really interested in what inefficiency gives us because, first of all, I think First of all, in terms of concentration and being present. Second of all, I don't, I think efficiency is a false rubric. I think if, you know, there are many more important things to me than efficiency. That doesn't mean I don't want to be efficient or effective in my work or in my personal, you know, I, mean, I, I just want to be a flop. Most days I don't, some days I do. But, um, <laughs> but I think that there's a way that meandering or wandering or digressing, digressing right, allows us to discover things that we wouldn't discover. 
however, if we were just on that, that kind of directed path. And I think that's useful for us as humans. Among, and it's useful for us in all sorts of ways, but, but most essentially it's useful for us as humans. You know, there's that, that wonderful line in, uh, that opens Berlin Childhood 1900 of Walter Benjamin, where he says, to find one's way in a city is easy, to lose oneself is an art. I mean, Rebecca Solnit has the, that, that book, the, the Art of Getting Lost, I was like getting that title wrong, but the, the book about getting lost. Vandalus. Yeah. And me, I never really noticed sky that much in the city on the East Coast, certainly out of the city on the East Coast. But in some ways, too, I want to say, I think that has to do with the horizontality because the sky, there's more sky to see. It's not that the sky is bigger, but it's less cut. And so, um, you know, there's more, I think the sky is more present in some sense because we're living in closer proximity to it. David, I would love you to read something, uh, from your, okay. something from your work. I, I would also like to tell our listeners that you're, you're right in the middle of, of editing uh, the Library of American three volumes of Joan Didion's collected work. And um, that's, that must be extraordinary to be doing. It's been an incredible experience, um, just in, I mean, on a variety of levels, not least of which has been the kind of engaged, deep rereading of the work. Um, you know, I, I feel that um, for me, the mark of a writer that, I, I don't, the mark of a writer who, the mark of a meaningful writer, and I say, use that word in the most personal and subjective of terms, is um, is one whose work continues to reveal things to you as the reader as you continue to read it, whether because your experience has changed or your experience of the work has changed. Um, and so I felt that way about Gideon for a long time, but in the course of doing this work where I've been rereading my way basically chronologically through the books and rereading it in a critical way because part of my job is to, uh, you know, it's to assemble um, cultural notes explaining references she's making that, that might not be common currency any longer. Um, I've begun to see all of these connections between the books that I knew were there in a kind of broader way as a reader of hers, but in terms of you know the kind of line-by-line reading of the work that I, that I have, been, have been doing, um, I, you know, it, that those connections are becoming more pronounced. And so I feel like, you know, if nothing else, I'm getting a much it's sort of unexpectedly much deeper understanding of work I, 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 I think I, you know, that I've spent a lot of time with already. And that has been a really, um, a really significant experience for me. For, before I ask you to read something, I, I must ask you for a, a little bit of advice. As, as somebody who has just moved back to, to Los Angeles after a 15 year hiatus, precisely in New York, um what do you what would you recommend I be particularly um mindful about uh so as to make this new experience really um really jive? I would say um I would be I would keep an eye on um let's see. How would I put it? I would keep an eye on how the city expresses itself. And by that, I don't just, I don't, I mean, I, I would look at sort of things that are happening in the city. I would look at sort of the revitalization of Los Angeles Times, as an example, not just in terms of 
the influx of money and a kind of stabilization of the organization, but in terms of who they're bringing in, they've been making some really remarkable hires, I think, and um, in terms of who they're bringing in to write about the city, um, opening up the, the lens of that civic institution, I think, you know, that's a, an ongoing experiment that I'm really, really curious to see how, how it plays out. I would look at the writing and art community, obviously, but I would also look at, you know, at landscapes. Again, we were talking about Koreatown. We were talking about um, downtown. I would look at Leonard Park. I would look at the effects of, um, and it's up in the air. We don't know yet. Ridership is actually down since the expansion of the light rail, which is um, a troubling statistic. But I think in terms of the long game, as the city begins to shift, it's not going to shift away from being a car-driven culture to being a kind of public transportation culture. What I think is more likely is that it'll be both, right? That, that, that it'll be a city with more opportunities. But I also think that the influx of public transportation, particularly in terms of train lines, um, is going to open up areas of the city that have been closed or, or neglected in some ways, um, depending on where those lines go and where those stations are. And so those are, you know, I think that, you know, I'm very interested in infrastructure just in general and how infrastructure builds culture or creates culture or encourages culture. Um, by making um, by making things available, and so I'm really you know particularly interested in the next say ten years or so as that system gets built out more in seeing how it brings the city not in a not in the kind of cliched way that we'd be able to travel from Pasadena to Santa Monica without changing trains, but how it brings the city together by offering far flung areas proximity to one another. I think that's a really important, um, potentially, well, a really potentially important development in, um, in how Los Angeles continues to grow. I will be looking out for all of that. And one of the things I, I just hope for is that soon, David, uh, we will take a long stroll together. I would love that. I would love to, I would love to see it both through your eyes and to encounter the city in a new way at that speed. Um, because, because, because Los Angeles is a city where one actually can think and can walk quite deeply. Read something to us. All right. I'm going to read a short excerpt from an, from a long essay. <laughs> Uh, this is from an essay called 15 Takes on California, which is an essay I published in the Virginia Quarterly Review or probably about four years ago by now. Um, and it is an essay that grew in all sorts of weird ways. I won't dissect it or, you know, but basically it's, it's, it's written as 15 sort of self-contained but related uh, chunks. And um, so I'm just going to read one, and they and they move sort of from idea to idea. So there's the expressed at the end of a chunk, and then the and that idea gets picked up more explicitly in the next chunk. So I'm just going to read one of them, and the one is called Place. Um, and I, I'll, I'll read the lead-in from beforehand. It, it spins off of um, it spins off of a line. Uh, by Gary, I won't even do that. Okay, this is just one called Place. And basically this is an essay that moves from my own personal experience of coming to California as a teenager um, into sort of broader questions of California history and what California means, um, you know, deconstructing some of the mythologies again, which is something I tend to do in a lot of the the California work. Um, And also thinking about what this means as a place, what, what place means here. Um, So this is just a small um, chunk of that essay called Place. 
none of us has deep roots in California, if we're referring that as to Anglos, to Americanos, the substance of the state's enduring myths. But what do these myths mean? What do they tell us? How long can they still promulgate? To speak of San Francisco as land's end is to read the map from one direction only, as Europeans would read it, or as the East Coast has always read, Richard Rodriguez has written. To speak, therefore, of San Francisco as land's end is to betray parochialism. My parents came from Mexico. They saw San Francisco as the north. The west was not west for them. And this, I have never looked for utopia on a map. The point of eating for me, for us, is not approach, but expulsion. California as land's end, world's end, it collapses under the weight of such a reading, as it must. It reveals the limits of our history, demographic history, social history, history of technology, our sense of this place as final landscape, last territory on the continent, where we face ourselves because there is nowhere to turn. And yet, what of its elemental history, its geographic history, which operates independent of our aspirations as if we were never here? This is the secret story of California, not its instability so much as its implacability, a blank slate upon which we inscribe our dreams. There are rocks on the earth more durable than the configuration of heaven, Kenneth Rex Ross observes in a lesson in geography. I am reminded of my afternoon on the Carrizo Plain, where I first encountered, although I did not then possess the language to understand it, what I have come to recognize as deep ecology. Wow. It's magnificent. I love it. You know, it... it 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 um um what is so interesting about that essay altogether is the way in which you you have these 15 entries which are 15 ways in a way of practicing the city well and I, the other part of it too for me is that it i hope and i feel i i, I feel you know real serve to talk about my own work, but I, or ill place to talk about my own work. Um, I hope it also, one of the ideas too is that there is no one take, and it could have been 55 takes or 732 takes or, you know, or six takes or whatever, but that it is always, there's all, it's all I have is a take or a set of takes. I'm never going to have a definitive take. So it's a matter of kind of collage, and I think in that sense it reflects what I think, what my my feeling is about the city and even of the state, that it is a collage environment where each of us has to kind of navigate our own way from take to take, from neighborhood to neighborhood, from um, you know from county to county, from location to location, and kind of create our own narratives through it. Again, I think that is also true of just human experience in general. But for me, coming to California um, and the upheaval. It, provoking me kind of, I think, intellectually and aesthetically um, means that this is the landscape where I've had to confront that idea. And how perfect that you you should be saying take. Uh, it it's so brings us back to the very notion of what has been so important on the West Coast, which is jazz. And mm-hmm. jazz and also, if we want to take it, in that direction, how to to improvise and to improvise also in a in a in an inventive way in the city of angels. Exactly, that's right, David. It's been a pleasure, and let thank you so much, Paul. It's 
been a deep, uh, deep pleasure for me as well. And let's let's digress sometime soon. Absolutely, I look forward to it. Take good care. Bye bye. You too.